0: I Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn, if you will, to the Book of Acts, chapter twenty, beginning reading verse seventeen to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter twenty, verse seventeen, and I'll be reading out of the New King James, as is my custom. Let me turn on this other microphone. There we go. Acts chapter twenty, beginning verse seventeen to the end of the chapter. God's Word declares, "From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to the elders of the church." And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Last week we began to look at... Uh... Paul's trip to Jerusalem in terms of some of his stops. We're going to have several to visit. And uh, the visit here is with the pastors from the region of Ephesus. um, But it's not going to be in Ephesus. As we talked about his uh, unwillingness to stop there because of the heart that he has for them and the unlikelihood that he'd be able to stop for a brief time and then move on. Some have said, well... um, there's a possibility the port in Ephesus was being worked on by the Romans, and so he would have had to have stopped out farther out um, along the shore and hiked back in and didn't want to take the time to do that. That is certainly a possibility. But I think we will see from the tenderness of the exchange that we have before us in our passage that this is really what was uh, his concern, is that once he arrived among those people, that he would be reticent to just up and leave the next day or two. Uh, And so he sails past, it says uh, in verse 16, he sailed past Ephesus um, because he was hurrying. He was trying to get to Jerusalem and he he lands in Miletus. And from there he sends Ephesus and calls the elders of the church, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think it wasn't about the hike because they had to, head down to Miletus from Ephesus, and he was willing to wait for them to come, but recognizing that he could, in a very short period of time, share with them what's on his heart, with an expectation of saying goodbye, and uh, because of the Spirit's revelation to him, as we're going to look at this morning. But we have, perhaps, um, in terms of the book of Acts, one of the tenderest um, exchanges in God's Word. Uh, in this book at least and among the top in the scriptures. In terms of between a man and his people, we'll see it extend into other communities as well. Um, but uh, here is the heart of a church planter who wants to establish his churches and uh, that means that he needs to take the time to give them fair warning of what's coming to guard their hearts, their lives, uh, their church, and um, from the evil one and from wicked men who would come in and seek to do damage. And uh, we find now that he is full, has full knowledge of, of where his course is going to end. Uh, that has been determined. He already knows that. What he does not know, as we're going to see, is the path. And uh, when people talk about predestination, they seem to forget what the word destiny means. It means the end. And we know the end. But the path between here, we may not be as well, uh, under, we may not understand, and uh, I don't know that God has determined that, but he has determined the end. And uh, the conclusion of this account of Paul's ministry um, has already been foretold to him, as we're going to see. And now it is for him to act it out, even though there's a lot that he doesn't know what's going to happen. He knows where it will end. And he is prepared to face that. We're going to see how he confronts the Ephesian elders with that information. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for uh, your goodness to us, for your love for us. And we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. And again, Lord, we pray that you might guard this time. Um, From our own interests and ideas and philosophies, you might guard us. And you might also guard us from the world's incursion into your word and into our attitudes and thoughts, uh, their ideas, and that we might uh, be receptive and sensitive to your spirit. That if there be unbelief in us that would hinder his work, that we might remove that even now and trust in you to direct us into your truth, knowing that you who have begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And that process involves your Spirit's work in us through your word and your people, and we rely on them now. And we pray you might work in our midst to honor, praise, and glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we find... Uh, Paul gathering them together. Uh, he has rehearsed to some degree his ministry uh, to them. We looked really the first aspects of that when he relates um, that he has ministered to them. He describes it with all humility in verse 19 of chapter 20 with many tears and trials at the hands of the Jews. But in all the midst of that, he did not... Uh, ever shy away from giving them everything they needed. None of those things stopped him from being sure to teach them both publicly and privately from house to house. In verse 20, it says that he's going to testify of Christ, that he is going to uh, share, whether you're Jew, whether you're Greek, doesn't matter. The key here is repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. This, this one-two punch and uh, we often want the second one without the leading. And the leading edge of this is repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. That we recognize that we are under judgment for God's righteousness and that it therefore it calls us towards faith in Jesus Christ. That we need to have His righteousness and not our own. Because in our own righteousness is a filthy rag, as the scriptures declare. Um, and uh, they cannot meet God's demands. And so we wait upon His, right? So we have faith in it toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we pick up in verse two, from last week, and we uh, begin to see Paul declaring some information that God has revealed to him some things, um, but he has uh, not uh, absolute clarity of it. We think that these men walked each day with full understanding of what that day would hold. But we find quite the opposite oftentimes. And so let's look at that. Verse 22, it says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. And so we have this knowledge that he has, and he uses an interesting word, is that um, he's going to talk about being bound in chains. Everybody that's going to confront him is going to say, in fact, later on, they're going to take one of his belts, uh, one of the prophets is going to take one, his own belt and bind himself and say, this is what's going to happen to you. And so he's talking about being bound and being in prison, being jailed, um, and, and all things that are going to be happening to him when he hits Jerusalem. Uh, but he uses that same term, interestingly enough, saying, I'm bound by the Spirit. I'm, and, and that word really involves this whole idea of being compelled. That there is... Uh, necessity to it, that just because I know the final outcome does not uh, preclude what the Holy Spirit has been working in me to accomplish that uh, I need to accomplish this trip. This is part of God's uh, purposes and I don't know what's coming. Uh, I know that at the end of this road um, from everything that's being foretold in terms of uh, prophetic utterances is that I'm going to have chains and tribulations waiting for me. I know the end. I know the conclusion, where this is going to uh, take me. I know what's at the destination. But what happens from now to there, I don't know. I don't know um, what's going to happen to me there. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know what's going to be involved. Uh, I, I don't know who what actions are going to precipitate all of this. I have no, I'm not going there intending to cause trouble, um, but God has made it clear that this is how my time in Jerusalem is going to end, is with me leaving Jerusalem, or at least being in Jerusalem with chains. And, and Paul's not even sure he's going to survive Jerusalem. He makes that pretty clear here. I, I'm not sure that I'll even live to leave that city again. Um, and here I am. And that might be a frightening prospect for us. For God to come and say, okay, at the end of this journey, um, you're going to be imprisoned and some horrible things are going to happen to you. Most of our responses are going to be, well, thanks for the news. Now I can work to avoid it. And we've talked about this for the last several weeks. But rather we see Paul embracing it. And one of the most powerful statements that he makes here in the beginning verse 24 is that none of these things, but none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And this is reminiscent for us of what we read in Philippians, where Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, talks about um, you know, I, I, everything else is irrelevant. Everything else is garbage, is, is trash, is rubbish, because um, I want to know Christ, and I want to uh, participate in His sufferings, there I might participate in His resurrection, and so I'm going to embrace all of this. I'm not going to seek to precipitate it. I'm not going to try to start things. I'm not going to be a rebel rouser. That's not what it is about. The gospel can do that on its own without us adding anything to it, um, to incite this kind of... Uh, activity towards me, and 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 really, we're going to see Paul do that. He's going to try to diffuse, 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 and every time he tries, it just seems to blow up in his face, worse and worse. Um, but he's going to not be a rebel rouser at all. He's not going to be antagonistic towards people generally. Um, and uh, uh, yet, here it comes, and he says, "I'm willing to embrace suffering. That's okay if that's God's purpose. I'm not going to." seek to incite it personally but uh, by simply ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ, if this is what it produces in other men then so be it, I will accept it and again we find that same comparison in Philippians let's read Philippians chapter 3, I think it's just worthwhile in case you're not familiar with it I'm going to reference it several times here so let's just read through this um We'll pick up verse 7, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, "...being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brother, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. So we find Paul using those same kinds of expressions that he shares here with the Ephesians. Of, I don't necessarily know what's exactly going to be awaiting me, but I know what the outcome is going to be. And it fits in line with what God had, had revealed to Ananias way back at my conversion, where he says that I'm going to have to suffer many things for his name's sake, that I'm going to have to preach to Gentiles, to kings, and to the Jews as well. And, uh, and so it fits that uh, I haven't really gotten to that realm of speaking to kings. And uh, God has protected him from it on several occasions. He protected out in Ephesus. Remember, the believers held him back. Don't go in there. You're liable to get arrested or something. You're going to be taken off and through that course you could have made it to Rome. It could have happened in Corinth. It could have happened on a number of occasions where the believers either slipped him out or he was left for dead and got up and got out of the city. Um, there's several times he could have gone through the judicial system of Rome and ended up before Caesar. But those weren't of God's purposes. And, and now that this is God's purposes, God has shown that to him. And so he uses this phrase, I am bound By the Spirit. Men may think that they're going to chain me and I'm going to have to be led around uh, according to their will. But the fact is, I'm already being led around according to someone's will. I'm already a prisoner. I'm already a captive. God has captivated my heart. And I am His servant. And I am ready to be led wherever He leads me to endure whatever I must endure for His name's sake. I am already bound. I am bound by the Spirit, and therefore I have to do what the Spirit leads me to do and there is no, no knowledge of what the future holds for me can change that and so he says nothing none of these things move me they they don't shift my purpose they don't they don't make me question what i'm about to do and, and later on um when uh, everyone is weeping, including all of his traveling companions, uh, Paul is, is going to ask him in 21 verse 13, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And finally, everyone kind of gets it about Paul. This weird character that just says, I'm going to serve God no matter what. Nothing's going to dissuade me from following Him. I am bound. That is, I am a servant, a slave, a, a, a prisoner of Christ, of the will of the Spirit. And so I will persist in this. Why weep and cry? It's all, you've, all you know is that I'm going to end up in prison. But you don't know anymore. And neither do I. And that's okay. And Paul says... I don't mind getting in prison because I don't mind dying for Christ. So if we're willing to die for Him, being imprisoned or bound or anything else, beaten, that's pretty, that's less. So if I'm willing to do the greater, I should be willing to do the lesser things. And so that should be a very simple thing uh, for everyone to understand. And finally, the people begin to realize that in verse 14 and 21, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, um, a little more, Fully is the will of the Lord be done. We're going to talk about that phrase a little bit more then. But We find Paul recognized, while not every step of this race is is known to me, the one of those milestones of my race with for God um, has been revealed. One of those milestones. Uh, one of those hurdles, if you will. I, I'm not going to say it's the finish line, because it's not, is it? We know it's not the finish line. In fact, um, it's going to open up a whole door of opportunity for ministry that Paul would never have gotten. And so this wasn't something to be feared. This was something to be embraced. Think about this a little bit. Um, let's just put this in perspective uh, and so you can begin to recognize how dependent we are on this transition of ministry for Paul. Um, every prison epistle was written after this event in Jerusalem. And we, now maybe you don't think of the books of the Bible by where they are written, but one of the ways we designate them are the prison epistles. That is the letters Paul wrote from jail. You don't have much else to do. You can't go visit the churches. So he starts writing to them. You can't go visit these men, so you have to go write to them. You have to go write to Timothy and to Titus, and, and, you have to, and Philemon, you have to write to these people. And we have those letters in our Bible. God isn't done with Paul just because he's going to be bound by men. He is bound by the Spirit because the Spirit still has work for him on the other side. But Paul's Ephesian friends and his traveling companions from from all the regions of Greece and and in Asia Minor, they don't see it that way. They, they, they see a dark dark tunnel, and Paul real recognizes that if if that is the end, if that is the finish line, I'm gonna I'm gonna run to it as hard as I can. I'm not gonna slow down. I'm not gonna uh, let up. I'm not going to uh, quit. I'm not going to sit down. Um. When I watch uh, races, and I, I see, uh, especially with the high school races, and I see them run this race, and then I see them slow down and walk across the finish line. Uh, it's like, you don't end your race there, you've got to run through the finish line. Um, and they slow down for about those four steps right before the finish line. And Paul says, you know what, if, if Jerusalem is my finish line, well, I'm going to run full strength right through that line. Because that's not the end. That's not when I, when I breathe my last of this air isn't the end of me. I have a resurrection that I am looking forward to. I have a presence with God that I am I'm anticipating. And so so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bust through that line and look into where, what God has for me. But he says, I'm going to run my race. I'm going to finish this. And if that's the finish line, so be it. But if that's just a hurdle... If that's just a barrier that I need to get by to go to another whole level of ministry, I'm going to do that too. And so I'm not going to let any of this knowledge of the hardship that awaits us move me away from my determination, from my captivation with what the Spirit wants me to do, with the ministry. This is His joy. And we can quickly reflect on a statement Paul makes about our Savior, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and his set down the right hand of the throne. The joy of ministry. I'll do it all. Because there's something beyond that, not only in my own personal experience, but in the experience of me, uh, of those around me, uh, of you guys. And here Paul is with his, some of his favorite people in the world. He's gathered around him. There they are. He's got his traveling companions. So he's got Luke, he's got Timothy, I he's got an old list we listed off there. Um, he's got all these guys with him. He's got these elders that have come down from, from Ephesus, some of his favorite guys, and there they all are together, and he's just sharing with them. And, and you know, just the impact that God has put on your lives through me is worth it. And, and who knows where this is going to go. So let's trust the Lord. And finally, I I would contend that that's what the phrase the Lord's will be done is. is We're going to trust the Lord. But we find Paul with this fantastic statement. Nothing will move me from the joy of my ministry which Jesus Christ gave to me. So I'm going to take the gospel with me wherever I end up going. Verse 25, we have further knowledge of the end. So there's things Paul does know, th- things Paul does not know. Among the things he does know through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, verse 25, he doesn't know what's going to happen exactly, but he knows that he's going to be bound and have some hardships there in Jerusalem. Verse 25, one of the other things that he does know is that he will not see this group again in terms of the Ephesian elders. He says, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. And this is really our last meeting. That whatever is going to happen on the other side of that threshold of Jerusalem, the Spirit has put inside of Paul recognition that this phase of ministry is complete and in terms of face-to-face ministry, he's still going to have a pen in hand. He's still going to have letters. He can write. But in terms of face-to-face ministry, this is it. This is my last visit with you all. And of course, this is the most upsetting to the Ephesians, we find out later. Um, and and it, I got to tell you, as a pastor, I kind of go, oh, they just, they just they're just they more concerned about that than the other stuff that's much more important. Um, and that happens sometimes, um, because some things hit people differently. Uh, I don't think Paul really meant to be melodramatic here at all. He's just stating the fact. I know this, so now I must lay hold of this opportunity to share with you some intense warnings. But the men couldn't get past this verse hardly uh, because it, they felt the pain of that. here's the man who brought us the gospel. Here's the one who has established us in the gospel. We've spent time ministering with this man. This is a precious servant of God um, that uh, uh, seems invaluable to us, uh, irreplaceable even. Um, And here he is. We're not going to be able to have access to him face-to-face anymore. And we begin to see just how loving this relationship is and how intense it is and why it is that Paul couldn't go to Ephesus. Um, It was going to be hard enough just to see these men's faces, let alone everyone's face in town, the entire church. Um, These were intimately uh, related to each other. An intimacy that, as we shared and talked about last week, um, is too many times lacking in our churches. And we find this Tenderness, touching the hearts of these men that would cause them, uh, in verse 37, to weep openly or freely. It says there in verse 37 um, that they, they uh, weren't going to hold back. There's no manly pride here. There's no, there's no toughness that they're going to, Machuism that they're going to try to uh, uh, share or, or show. Uh, there's no facades here, they are going to weep uh, openly, they're going to weep freely, that is with just is, they're just going to weep, they're not going to hold it back at all, um, they're going to wear it on their sleeve, and they're going to show it, Paul, what they feel about uh, this idea that this will be their last visit from him, and the tenderness here, uh, they're just falling, it says on Paul's neck and kissed him, Um, sorrowing. Not because of his testimony, but because of their loss. And let's just recognize something very basic about sorrowing. Um, These people are sorrowing because they're going to not see his face. And that's most sorrowing, Um, I'm not going to say all, I'm going to be very deliberate. Most sorrowing is pretty selfish. We're usually sorrowing over our loss. It is our loss of relationship with someone who has perished that brings us, as died, that has fallen asleep, if they're a believer, that we sorrow. Now, there is a sorrow that we have for those who die without Christ and and, uh, that is for their loss for their eternal judgment. Um, and so therefore, I do not say all sorrowing, but much of our sorrowing is for our loss. That we lose and then we feel bad. We, we have tears shed for ourselves, generally. And so these men are taking this opportunity to show certainly their their uh, love for Paul, but also recognizing that out of all he says, um what they zeroed in on on this occasion was they're not going to get to see him again. And that made them sad and sorrowing. And Paul correctly, uh, by the time he gets to the next group, correctly addresses that. Whether he addressed it with the Ephesian elders, we don't know. I would contend that he probably did with words similar to chapter 21, verse 13. The fact is that we uh, ought to be rejoicing that God is willing to use and to direct a man like Paul in his ministry. And for this kind of testimony, that I will serve the Lord, I am bound to. Nothing will move me from that condition of being bound in the Spirit. Nothing. Nothing will distract me from it. Nothing will raise its head to be of more value to me. Um, The chains of men have nothing comparable to the chains that I have allowed the Spirit to bind me with. That I am going to follow Him uh, into the deepest valleys, into the darkest places, uh, knowing that I can trust Him. And so, we have no reason to sorrow, other than our own losses. In the midst of this condition, Paul wants to share with them this testimony. Being his last face-to-face visit with them, and certainly this is probably the content of most of his visits that he has, but we have it related to us here in this occasion particularly. It says that he wants them to know that he is innocent of the blood of all. That he has not uh, avoided or... Shunned is the word here in our uh, New New King James to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He hasn't he hasn't shirked from that responsibility to share with them all of the instruction God has. He is not leaving out large categories of teaching. And this, I think, is very critical in understanding what is involved in establishing a church and establishing new believers in their faith, is they need this whole counsel. I have been, how should I say this, rebuked on occasions um, throughout my ministry as a church planter, saying, no, you shouldn't be doing so much in-depth teaching. You should be sharing the gospel and nothing else. And by that they meant you should just be sharing evangelistic sermons over and over and over and over again, every sermon. Um, and believing that that establishes churches is evangelizing inside the corridors of church. Um, I'm not going to deny that there might be some necessity for evangelism inside the corridors of the church. You've heard me say that frequently recently. But that cannot be the, the extent of it. That cannot be the fullness of it. And that does not establish churches. And I'll share with you why. Um, If we do not preach the whole counsel of God, if we leave huge voids in our teaching that we are unwilling to visit because either we are wishy-washy in them because we haven't come to a position or because we want to avoid the debate and and the engagement that might occur because we might offend someone over here in this theological camp, And so we just avoid that. Um, We are doing an injustice to the ministry of the church. And what we are setting the church up for is to fall for the very things that Paul sees coming down the road in Ephesus. We are setting them up for that. We are setting them up for someone to come in, in this area of doctrine that we have avoided because it's hard. Because there may not be 100% agreement among us. and, and so we just avoid it. Uh, and that kind of teaching ministry does severe damage to the church. And those that rebuked me for preaching the way I preach and for trying to do in-depth Bible studies with people from the very beginning of a church. In fact, I had one man when he found out that our, this church was only maybe two years old and we were going through the book of Hebrews on Sunday night. And he's like, his jaw dropped. He says, why would you do that? I said, because it's in the Bible. <laughs> of course, he said, oh, a young congregation could handle that. Oh, yes, they can. And they must. Quickly. Paul only had three years at Ephesus or so. And do you think he avoided things like are covered in the book of Hebrews? Absolutely not. He says, I have... I have not failed, I have not shirked from teaching you the entire counsel of God because that's your strength, that's your foundation, that's your safety. That is, that, that is what guards you from all the incursions of error that are going to seek to make their way into your life, into your thought, into your, into your church family. And so it is necessary that our doctrine is, is, is broad as well as deep. That we cover all the bases. That we don't have people walking out of church going, I wonder what we believe about that. He's never really said. That should never be. You should be able to walk out of this church having been here for a while under the teaching of this church. And not just my preaching, but there's a lot of other teaching going on. Um, I noticed several of you wore your India outfits because I said Wednesday night that my wife and I were going to wear ours. Um, This was our India day. Uh, so on Wednesday night, we're doing that teaching. We're, we're, we're Sunday night and Sunday school and Word of Life Club. All of those are teaching opportunities. And so when we look at the teaching of our church, why do we want to have all of these regions touched? Why are you uh, tackling things? They're just sometimes left, better left alone. Because we'd be shirking our responsibility to teach the whole Of God's word. And so we are unafraid. To tackle sin. And call it sin. I don't care what the Supreme Court says. We all know. That we are in the depth of sin. When we are. In this position. Of glorifying. uh, One of the more heinous acts than in fact Romans tells us point blank that one of the evidences of a society with their conscience seared is that they go after people of their own sex. That's the evidence that is cited by Paul in Romans that the conscience is seared with a hot iron. And that's a dangerous place to be. Ask the people of Sodom. Gomorrah, ask the people before the flood. Um, that's a dangerous place to be. When you, as, not just individually, but as a collective, as a, as a society, that your conscience is so seared that you will celebrate sin as good. And you can read it in our newspaper today, this was the right thing to do. And finally, we have liberty, we have freedom, we have all these things. What we have is total moral decay. And we are unafraid to address that. And if that means people get up and walk away, don't want to call us, call us haters or whatever they want to do, so be it. It's the whole counsel of God. And the only way we are going to be preserved for that day of Christ's coming is if we can uh, have a grasp of all of it. A strong enough grasp that none can loose us from it. That the winds of the world aren't going to sway us. That they aren't going to rip us away from our foundations because we are well-rooted in it. And so Paul says, "On all of my work, here's why I am innocent of the blood of men. Why? Because I am not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. That's why I am innocent of men's blood. If I left you with great big gaps and holes, that I was unwilling to address because, oh, it's too controversial, uh, or people might not like to hear that, um, that I've done a disservice to God. I cannot claim to be bound in the Spirit. I cannot claim to be free from the blood of all men. I have set you up to just be destroyed. I would be one of the greatest traitors to Christ that there would be. And yes, I would contend that some of the greatest traitors to Christ are standing in pulpits today preaching less than the whole counsel of God. Setting up people who want to follow God to fail to follow God. And here comes the warning that we've been waiting for. Something else God knows. I'm I'm skipping a verse because I'm going to get back to it. Verse 29, For I know this, so he knows he's not going to see them, but he also knows this. He knows his future. He's gone from his future to their future, to their collective future, him and them, to just their future. I know this that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. First warning. I have shared with you the whole counsel of God, and I commission you to do the same thing, because. You're going to have assaults come against the church. It's going to say savage wolves will come in um, and have no consideration of the people of God. They'll have no love for them. They'll have no care for them. Uh, they're going to creep in um, as a wolf would. Um, a wolf doesn't charge in growling and snarling. They creep. Very quietly. As get as close as they possibly can before they reveal themselves. Don't they? Come on, you've all watched Animal Planet or any of those. You've all seen those predators. They come in and they don't go from a mile away. You don't see them coming. They've crept up. They've crouched down. They're down in the grass pretending to be innocent and and I'm just nothing and here I am on this low thing crawling along. I'm not a threat to you at all until they are right upon you, and then they jump up, and claws and teeth, born. And now you're dead. Paul says, that's coming. And because I know that's coming, I have made sure to preach to you the whole counsel of God. That's your defense. It's your way of recognizing these individuals, and to to see them coming and crawling and saying, that's a wolf. I don't care that it's lower than the grass right now. I don't care that it looks like it's cowering. And and I don't care that it's quiet now. I can recognize it because of it. That's a wolf. (laughs) And I can call it that. Whether it's acting like a wolf or not. And we somehow seem to be blinded to the fact that we use God's word to recognize these savage wolves before they jump up with their claws and teeth born but rather we we recognize them from far off, crawling towards us, not acting out their beliefs, not acting out who they really are. They're a great threat, but they don't act like it, do they? They're just creeping along in the grass. Oh, don't mind me. All quiet until they're on top of you. Paul says that's what's coming. This is opposition from outside. Coming, trying to come in, creeping in. Now, you might think, be thinking about ISIS and things like that. That's, that's not really the grave danger. The gravest danger are these that have crept in and have yet to uh, pounce. And they are there. Um, we would call them sleepers in our modern t- uh, terminology. Who have doctrinal deviations that they are trying to introduce and they're undermining people's faith in Christ and in His Word and in its verrancy and its power and authority. And they are trying to undermine the values and and mores and, and they're undermining all the flock by making the flock think that they have the flock's interest at heart and that they are just a humble, non-threatening person that just wants to express themselves. But we find instead that they're savage wolves and they don't care who they destroy. That's from outside. Beware. Be warned. Here's what's coming into you. And certainly we can imagine the Judaizers being among this number who come in and say, oh yes, we love Jesus, we love Jesus. But you have to keep the law too, folks. You should all be circumcised. Paul's already dealt with those. He's already written the book of Galatians by the time he's having this conversation. So he knows. He knows this is going to happen. Now, that's pretty bad. There's a second threat which is also why we need to teach the whole counsel of God, which is also why um, he commissions them to do what he's done. And that is uh, maybe even a little more frightening um, than the savage wolves is the second one, verse 30. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up. Speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. So Paul's got a group of pastors around him of elders and he looks out at these faces that love him that are going to weep and and hang on his neck they're going to sorrow that they're not going to see him again and he has a very pointed statement to say that among yourselves. That here you all are as followers of Jesus Christ come down here at my beckoning to spend this time together to say goodbye. But when you go home some of you some of the very ones standing there among yourselves, some of you are going to become self-interested. Some of you are going to want to have your own disciples. You're going to want to do your own thing. You're going to start following, it says, perverse things. You're going to, and that's not just immoral things, but it's it's that whole idea of perversion is basically non-standard. You're going to be teaching things that just aren't uh, true. They, they aren't fully true. You're going to be intermingling certain words, but you're going to mean different things by them, and, and you're going to lead people away from the truth uh, and what it truly means, what it's the standard use of those words and, and phrases, into this perverse use of those words and phrases. And we have that all over us, to, around us today. Uh, people who say, oh yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, and then I have to ask them, well, which one? Right? Don't we have to ask that question, which one? Because they've taken all of our terms. They've taken believe, Jesus Christ, repentance, salvation. They've taken all those that terminology of the Scripture, but they mean something totally different by it. Correct? So I have to ask them, what do you mean? Which Jesus? Do you believe in the Mormon Jesus or The Jehovah's Witness Jesus, the half-brother of Satan. uh, You believe in the Jesus of God's Word. You believe in the, you know, which Jesus? You tell me. Because they've taken the verbiage of Scripture and have perverted those meanings and now they have led people away into error. And Paul says the reason you're doing this is because you want disciples for yourself. Instead of being slaves and captives of God to do His will, you want to exert your own influence, and you're going to be dragging people away from the truth um, by tweaking definitions to your liking, and you are a great hazard to the church. So, why do we need the whole counsel of God? To defend ourselves from ourselves, <laughs> we need the whole counsel of God to defend ourselves from ourselves. That we are in that we recognize there's an inherent danger. Just as we talked about previously about faith, that 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 uh, faith is 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 old, is jeopardized, not because of God's side, because of man's side. We recognize that a church can be jeopardized because we can become faithless. We can become fickle. We can become self-interested and say, well, I'm going to take this group and I'm going to lead them off and I'm going to into this direction that I think we ought to all be going. Um, And uh, Paul says, that's why I appreciate the whole council. And he goes in, he says, listen, um, remember, for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Three years I invested in in, uh, night and day. I wish I had night and day. Um, So I tell people I haven't quite reached three years of night and day in 16 years of ministry. All right, add that up. You figure it out, how many nights and days I've actually spent. Maybe, maybe I've reached three years worth of night and days. I don't think so. Because I only get an hour a week for most people and that doesn't compare to night and day for three years. He's warning, warning, warning. What? Not only that we're going to have people aggressively coming after the church to devour it, sneaking up on us from the outside, from other religious belief systems and philosophical positions, but we're going to have within us a, a, a treacherous, spirit within our hearts that we need to keep in check. And the way we keep that in check is with the whole counsel of God. And so that we can sharpen each other and say, hey, you're getting a little weird over here. You're getting a little weird over there. And and let's keep this centered on God's Word. Let's let's, uh, make sure that we aren't going uh, off the base. That we are still... Solidly on the foundation. And in order to do that, the church needs to know the foundation. And that's what Paul says his job was. For three years, I warned you with tears this is the foundation. Don't let anyone move you from it. Don't let anyone shift you off of it. Even a little bit. I don't know about you, but I want my house to sit squarely on its foundation. Don't you? Would you be okay with the builder say, well, it's mostly on the foundation? Right? Would you be okay with that? Least was just had an addition. Would you be okay if the contractor said say, it's mostly on the foundation? You'd be all right with that, right? Well, okay, you know, 80%, that's pretty good. Right? You go to that realtor and say, anything wrong with this house? No, it's mostly on the foundation. Now, come on. If someone said, what do you mean, Mostly? And yet, when it comes to our foundation in Christ, we're okay with mostly on, the, we're mostly on the foundation. What do you mean? As soon as we start to drift off the foundation, we ought to be going, because we would do that with our house. Right? What happens when your car is not quite on its frame right? You take it to the guy. Oh, I was an accident. Okay, well, we straighten it all out. It's mostly on the frame. Would that be good enough for you? And yet, somehow in our spiritual lives, that's okay. I can tool down the interstate of life mostly on my frame. Mostly. I've got a few things that are out of whack, but I'm mostly on it. No. And so we have to know the whole counsel of God to persist in being solidly on the foundation. And when we start to shift... When we start to even sense a tendency to shift, we call each other back because we know the footprint. We know the layout. We know every facet of our foundation and that you can't just go over here and and be wishy-washy. Well, you know, we got the rest of the foundation. If this part of the foundation is crumbling, it's just a little piece of it. I had some dialogue with some of the men at Answers in Genesis, a very, very, very fundamental group. Um, But they've ignored several parts of the foundation. And their statement is, that's not our job. And I just looked at and said, well, it is mine. And I would really like you to shore up that part of the foundation so I know what you believe about these areas, because they're important, because they're in God's word. Yes, you got creation, you got Genesis, you got the flood, you've got all of those things. That's very good. That's you got salvation, but you just don't ignore this whole wing of Christianity and that this whole foundation over here because it's all tied into the rest. We must have the whole counsel of God. This is our work and it is our guard; It is what keeps us established, keeps us standing. And so when Paul talks in verse 32, I commend you to God to the word of His grace. The word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Um, this is what he calls them to. And back up there in verse 28, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And in a typical A, B, B, A format, he starts off, take care of yourselves, take care of the flock, because the flock is under duress from wolves, and you yourselves, you can't fully trust. So part of shepherding isn't just taking care of the flock, part of shepherding is making sure the shepherd is going the right way. Right? I mean, a flock follows the shepherd and if that shepherd is lost, guess what the flock is? Lost. (laughs) So he says, take heed. Pay attention. Pay attention to maintaining yourselves and pay attention to the church that God has put under your care. That you are to shepherd them. And by recognizing these two great threats wolves seeking to devour us, and shepherds seeking to establish their own flocks instead of God's. And Paul confronts these men with this sober account. we're going to talk a little bit more about the final parts of this next week about the logistics of Paul's ministry but we can't lose touch with this necessity of not just from leadership but all the way through Christian circles that we have an established foundation that is described by Paul as the whole counsel of God. And once we have that foundation, then we can back up and say, nothing moves me now. Nothing moves me. And the fact still remains that if you have a shaky foundation, if you have a rubble foundation, and the quake comes, your house will fall down. In your house of faith built on on weak theology and a weak understanding of God's word will collapse around you. And I see a lot of Christians out there picking and choosing their favorite little things uh, by little brief quotes of their favorite teacher here, or favorite teacher there in this category, in that category. And they have developed this very (laughs) self-serving, but very weak foundation. Easy to put together. A little pebble here, a little pebble there. Um, This is the Haitian foundations, by the way, I'm talking about. They're all rubble. That's what they did. They just poured a bunch of little rocks in a trough. They poured dry cement over the top and expected the moisture from the ground and the air to harden it. And when the quake came it all fell down. They built two story buildings on those kind of foundations, rubble. But yet spiritually that's where most of us are. Too many in the church are spiritually just I'll take a rock from here, or I like this, I like that, don't like that. Well you gotta have it all. You've got to have this solid foundation, and now you are immovable. Now the quakes of life can come through and you will stand. The opposition will occur, the winds will blow, the storms will roar, and you will stand. The reason we are so shaky in our faith is perhaps because we haven't invested enough into the foundation. And Paul recognized that and that's why he spent so much time Investing night and day. I need to establish I don't have much time. I have to redeem the time I have. I have to invest in you. I, you need to know the whole counsel of God. And that's why we have uh, books like Romans and where just he didn't actually get to be with the Roman church but he wanted them to know here's the whole counsel. Here's what I'm teaching everybody in a nutshell. And we are benefited from it. Why could Paul, bound by the Spirit, go in without fear not because he knew everything that was going to happen but because he had taken heed to himself to make sure he was a a true captive of the spirit committed to the whole counsel of God and now he desired the same for this precious group who would lead the church in Ephesus for at least a generation in the ways of that truth. And when we get to Revelation, we find that while they might have lost their first love, their passion, if you will, what they didn't lose was this foundation. Because here's what God had to say about the church of Ephesus. Ephesus. I know your works, your labor, your patience or endurance, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for an sake and have not become weary. Do you think the foundation held? Well, at least for a generation it did. This generation that was rooted in it. Christ's evaluation of them while they had lost some of their passion down the road, their, their first love, and they needed to turn back to that, um, they were sensitive and careful about the wolves and about themselves. And this is our challenge today. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you. Again, for your love for us. Thank you for your word and for its warnings. Lord, we see the world around us. We see the pitfalls and dangers that are awaiting us and we are well warned and hopefully well prepared to address those and yet seldom are we as careful in identifying ourselves. The pitfalls and weaknesses that would seek to Resurrect pride in us that we once submitted to you as salvation. And Lord, we pray that you might find us to be your captives, that we are compelled to follow you. The cost is irrelevant. Lord, help us to sustain that spirit to your coming. Being guarded from those outside and from those within by the whole counsel of your word. And Lord, help us to be better students of your word. We know your spirit will grant us wisdom will enlighten us to its truth. We'll even fill our mouths with it if we will fill our minds with it. That when necessary, we'll have the right words to speak. So Lord, we pray you might find us in your word. Holding to it and teaching it, establishing ourselves on it, that we might stand to your day. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.